Good evening and welcome to Wednesday's edition of Tisky Sour. Michael Walker has sadly been struck down with the flu, so I'm Moya Lothi McLean, sitting in while his immune system stages a fight back. Tonight, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing on this freezing evening? I'm very good, Moya. I'm very happy to be joining you. I'm not particularly cold, thankfully, but uh, I just took Moya up for a walk and I don't think he was uh, particularly happy to be confronted with these wintry conditions, but I hope to uh, warm up our listeners with some some important news and uh, I'm sure you do a great job. Well, tonight we'll be covering Channel Crossings, Qatari corruption and the fire brigade. Stay tuned though, as we'll be bringing you an exclusive interview with Mick Lynch of the RMT discussing his media treatment. But first, a developing news story. Four people have sadly been confirmed dead trying to cross the channel. A government spokesperson announced the deaths at midday today. They said at 3.05am today, authorities were alerted to an incident in the channel concerning a migrant small boat in distress. After a coordinated search and rescue operation led by HM Coast Guard, it is with regret that there have been four confirmed deaths as a result of this incident. Investigations are ongoing and we will provide further information in due course. This is a truly tragic incident and our thoughts are with the friends and families of all those who have lost their lives today. Sources told The Guardian that there may be further casualties and a major search and rescue operation was launched in the freezing conditions off the Kentish coast. BBC reporter Simon Jones tweeted this. 43 people rescued in the channel, many from the water. A small number confirmed dead. Sky News shared footage of the rescue, which showed people being pulled from an inflatable boat. Home Secretary Suella Braverman responded to the tragedy in the Commons with a statement that laid the blame for the deaths at the door of people smugglers and pledged to end their business model. Mr Speaker, these are the days that we dread. Crossing the Channel in unseaworthy vessels is a lethally dangerous endeavour. It is for this reason, above all, that we are working so hard to destroy the business model of the people smugglers, evil, organised criminals who treat human beings as cargo. As the Prime Minister told the House only yesterday, it is not cruel or unkind to want to break the stranglehold of the criminal gangs who trade in human misery and who exploit our system and our laws. He was right. This morning's tragedy, like the loss of 27 people on one November day last year, is the most sobering reminder possible of why we have to end these crossings. We recently agreed the largest ever small boats deal with France, with more boots on the ground patrolling their beaches, UK and French officers working together in both countries. The Calais Group of Northern European Nations works to disrupt trafficking and smuggling all along the migration route and has set an ambition for a UK-EU-wide agreement on migration. And since 2015, we have welcomed 450,000 people here from all across the world via safe and legal routes, making these dangerous crossings totally unnecessary. But it was evident that we had to go much further which is why the Prime Minister announced a new package yesterday. 
That new package Braverman refers to is the five-point plan put forward by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in Parliament yesterday, where he promised to get tougher than ever on asylum seekers. Mr Speaker, it is unfair that people come here illegally. It is unfair on those with a genuine case for asylum when our capacity to help is taken up by people coming through and from countries that are perfectly safe. It is unfair on those who migrate here legally when others come here by cheating the system. And above all, and above all, it is unfair on the British people who play by the rules when others come here illegally and benefit from breaking those rules. So people are right to be angry, Mr. Speaker, because they see what I see, which is that this simply isn't fair. It is not cruel or unkind to want to break the stranglehold of criminal gangs who trade in human misery and who exploit our system and laws. Enough is enough. So what's in the new five-point plan? It includes this. A new small boats command using the military, civilians and the National Crime Agency to tackle channel crossings. Great enforcement, including raids on businesses illegally employing migrant workers. An end to the use of hotels to house asylum seekers. Instead, disused holiday parks, surplus military sites and empty university halls will be used. And the number of caseworkers will be tripled. Meanwhile, Albania will be deemed a safe country, meaning that most applications will be rejected out of hand. Sunak will also change the law, criminalising people who arrive in the UK by small boat. Mr Speaker, I said enough is enough and I mean it. And that means I am prepared to do what must be done. So early next year, we will introduce new legislation to make unambiguously clear that if you enter the UK illegally, you should not be able to remain here. Instead, instead you will be detained and swiftly returned either to your home country or to a safe country where your asylum claim will be considered. And you will no longer be able to frustrate removal attempts with late or spurious claims or appeals. And once removed, you should have no right to re-entry, settlement or citizenship. The only way to come to the UK for asylum will be through safe and legal routes. And as, and, and as we get a grip of illegal migration, we will create more of those routes. We will work with the UNHCR to identify those most in need so the UK remains a safe haven for the most vulnerable. And we will introduce an annual quota on numbers set by Parliament in consultation with local authorities to determine our capacity and amendable in the face of humanitarian emergencies. Now, we all know there are hardly any safe routes for asylum seekers to get to the UK. So it looks like the plan is to clamp down on those taking unsafe routes, the only routes they can actually use, with a vague promise to establish more safe routes on the never-never. Fortunately, Labour's Keir Starmer rushed in with a full-throated defence of the rights of refugees. 
Just kidding. Here's what happened instead. Mr. Speaker, channel crossings are a serious problem requiring serious solutions. We need leadership at home and abroad. We need a home office that functions effectively and we need to defeat the criminal gangs operating on the coast. But time and time again, this government has not provided serious solutions. The Prime Minister sat around the cabinet table the whole time. Where there should have been solutions, we've had unworkable gimmicks. And Mr Speaker, as I listen to that statement, all of that has been said almost yeah, word exactly. for word before. The last time we had measures, the last time we had legislation. Plenty of newspaper headlines about wave machines, prison ships, fantasy islands, but no effective action. All designed to mask failure, to distract from a broken asylum system that can't process claims, can't return those with no right to be here, and can't protect our borders. That little exchange led SNP MP Stuart MacDonald to say this. Watching both the Prime Minister and Keir Starmer attempt to outdo one another with intolerant right-wing rhetoric shows exactly why Scotland needs independence. The SNP and the people of Scotland want no part in this deplorable race to the right. Instead of offering a humane and compassionate response to those fleeing war-torn countries or facing persecution, both the Tories and Labour remain hell-bent on playing up to their extreme Brexit and borders-obsessed wings. Aaron, the Tories clearly want to make a brutal line on migration a wedge issue with Labour before the next election. But Labour's just keeping up with them. Is this a political mistake? I don't think it's a political mistake necessarily. I mean, this is one of the major issues which could really split the Tories. You know, Nigel Farage has repeatedly said this is not a real Conservative government. And as I'm sure many of our viewers are aware, this year we've seen 1.1 million people um, enter the UK, around half a million people left. So you've had a net immigration figure of around half a million, slightly higher. Now, of course, when you've had repeated Conservative administrations promising to reduce immigration to the tens of thousands. That wasn't just Suella Braverman, but also the likes of Theresa May and David Cameron. By the way, it goes all the way back to Margaret Thatcher, in fact, the exact same line. Then, of course, the Tory base, which cares deeply about this subject, around 75% of Conservative voters from 2019, think we should have fewer people entering this country. It clearly is something which the leadership and Sunak would, quote unquote, have to get a grip on. Now, there are obviously all manner of inconsistencies in this. The reason why people are turning to human smugglers and illegal routes is because that legal routes are either foreclosed or incredibly difficult. And if you make it harder for people to enter a country legally, as we're literally seeing over the course of 2022, more people pursue illegal routes. So the whole thing seems to be an exercise in, in, in stupidity and, and trying to appease the media on this issue. The idea, for instance, that you would criminalise somebody entering this country illegally when they've probably had to flee the most unthinkable conflict, tragedy, famine, goodness knows what, if you're coming from somewhere like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, is, again, obviously uh, ridiculous. So the politics of it, I don't think, are especially important, but I don't think we should try and necessarily make sense of them. And Labour doing what they're doing, I think, is, is equally, equally predictable. Here's the thing, though. 
like I said, 1.1 million people came into this country. The people coming by boat at present are tens of thousands. But I think for the average punter, particularly the average conservative voter, if they were engaging with this debate through the lens of print media, particularly the tabloids, they would think that the majority of people coming to this country are coming via boats and landing in Kent. And this is, of course, a moral panic, and it's in no way based upon the facts or reality. I think at the very least, Labour could defang that. The fact that they're not, I think, says a great deal about the politics of Keir Starmer. The deaths of four asylum seekers in the channel didn't stop talk TV host Julia Hartley Brewer going on this incredible rant. Do you think with this tragic incident, we'll, we'll, I'll go again. People will say these are desperate people. You're in France. I, I don't know how many times I'm going to have to say this. You're in France. You're not in war-torn Syria. You're not in Ukraine. You're not being bombed. You're in France, mm. okay? Um, you're not desperate at that point. You really are not. The fact that you happen to know someone who lives in Leeds, so you want to go to England, well, tough. Um, putting yourself in there, I mean, I, th- I first of all, I'm sorry, I first of all blame those people themselves getting in those boats. When you see people, you see children dying, and migrants are, uh, uh, you know, putting their children into that service. If you did that in this country, you'd be prosecuted for, mm. you know, for endangering your child's life. Um, these people are victims in that way. But, you know, the point at which this happens, you know, I, I don't want anyone to die in these situations, but the traffic, people traffickers, they don't care. Of course not. They make money either way because the money's already been paid up yeah. front. That's how it works. Um, you know, it, it's, yeah, it, it, how do you deal with it? I know that a lot of people will use this. This will be used as it often is as an excuse to say, well, we need to let people in. We need to fast track the system routes. by approving them. That's what, yeah, exactly. More safe routes. Everybody wants safe routes, but let's be honest, the safe routes need to be in the places you know, where they're coming from. Open them in Nairobi if they're fleeing from Sotomayor. I don't want safe routes for the 21-year-old car washers from from, from uh, Albania. Albania. I'm sorry, I don't. I really don't. You can call me whatever name you want, but I don't. Yes, if getting on a small boat across a notoriously difficult passage in freezing temperatures doesn't prove that someone's desperate, I don't know what does. Aaron, what do you make of the argument that asylum seekers should feel safe in France and the strange fixation on Albania? So this idea that people should stay in the first safe country they enter is generally speaking what uh, people fleeing war, conflict, famine, etc. is generally what political persecution or persecution in regards to, you know, personal rights and whatnot is generally what people do. Um, so if you look at the countries with the largest number of, you know, refugees in them, Lebanon is up there. Iran is up there from people that are fleeing Afghanistan, perhaps counterintuitively, given many people are also leaving Iran. If you look at, for instance, Colombia with regards to people displaced from Venezuela. So generally speaking, people do precisely that. But this idea that, well, if people are coming from West Asia or, or North Africa and they're coming into Europe, well, they should just stay in the first safe place they encounter. That could be, I guess, Greece or Turkey or Italy. Well, it just seems a really stupid way to, to, to carry on. You know, the idea that Greece or Italy, for instance, in the context of runaway climate change, state breakdown, which, by the way, Western foreign policy has played a major role in, the idea that those countries would have to effectively home and and and, and care for tens of millions of people, I, I, I think is patently absurd. It would create political volatility literally within Europe. And clearly, you want a sensible, rational way of distributing people with legitimate asylum claims, which is the vast majority of people on these boats across Europe. There's an equitable way of doing that. Right now, actually, for all the talk we get in the media, we aren't really pulling our weight regardless. The number of people that apply uh, for refugee status in something like Sweden, 
per head is far higher than us. In Germany, not even per head, but in real terms, massively outstrips us. So this idea that Britain is a, a victim somehow when it comes to refugees is, is simply nonsense. So yes, we should be arguing for a sensible, rational, controlled way of allocating people refugee status within the European Union and, of course, the UK too. But the right, as ever, want a free-for-all, chaos, uh, and something which actually isn't in any way manageable. And, of course, that helps people like Julia Hartley-Brewer. They don't want a solution. They don't want to solve problems because they love problems. Problems give them clickbait. Problems give them opportunities to run their mouth on radio and TV and in newspapers. And that's what they thrive on, chaos and conflict. No, the left in this instance should be the voice of trying to solve the problem and actually saying we need a holistic structural solution to a problem which, by the way, over the course of the 21st century is only going to get worse. And if we care so deeply about people not having to leave their countries of origin, maybe we shouldn't invade them. Maybe we shouldn't subject them to horrific sanctions, which means that people can't access basic medicines. That's what we're doing right now in Iran. So when people leave those countries and try and come here, I think it's reasonable to say that the British media should be somewhat more sympathetic. Not invading countries so people aren't forced to flee? What a radical idea. Now, I've got one last clip for you on this. Christian Wakeford is a former Tory MP who crossed the floor to join Labour in January. He had previously strongly supported the Tories' Nationality and Borders Bill, but following discussions with asylum seekers in his constituency, as well as the news of the Channel tragedy today, he made this statement in a debate at Westminster Hall. Close to 18 months ago, I was in a debate on the Nationality and Borders Bill. In that debate, I said that asylum seekers travel through many safe countries and that they essentially have a shopping trolley as to what they want as economic migrants. And I want to go on record here, Mr Chairman, and say that it's important to admit that when, when you are wrong, and following my meetings with Mary and others, it showed me that I was wrong, and I'm sorry for that. Every week, government uses scapegoats, and as we continue to see even yesterday with the Prime Minister's statement, Asylum seekers have been one off for this government for far too long. I'm sorry for playing my part in that narrative as well. These people aren't arbitrary numbers for newspaper editors to froth at the mouth about or to stoke the fire of intolerance. They're human beings, and we all need to remember this. They've had their hopes and their dreams for them and their children. They've had them dashed, but they still have that hope. They want a good education. They want to live life without fear or persecution. But more importantly, they need our help and assistance. That statement took place in the context of a debate about giving asylum seekers the right to work, which they currently don't have. Aaron, are we witnessing a conversion moment from Wakeford here? Possibly. I mean, I, 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 wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't deign to be able to peer into anyone's soul, least of all somebody as vacuous who's gone from the Conservative Party to, to Labour, literally within two years of being elected, I believe. But it's important to say that I, I believe Wakeford's grandfather was Ukrainian. I mean, that potentially plays a role here, right? Several hundred thousand Ukrainians have, um, have come into the UK, obviously, this year as a result of the conflict in Ukraine and, and Russia's illegal invasion. So perhaps you can see why that might catalyze some thinking and something of a Damascene conversion. But I do find it really difficult. I mean, I, I'm glad he said it. And I obviously hope more people follow him and, you know... Uh, God loves somebody who repents their sins and asks for forgiveness. You know, uh, I hate to use religious language, but I think that's probably a good way of, of behaving in this life. But 
he was a, not just a member of the Conservative Party. He was a, a an MP. This was somebody who campaigned on the back of the 2019 manifesto. This is somebody who had to defend Boris Johnson um, as the potential prime minister of this country. And that's a gentleman who refers to, you know, Muslim women as, as letterboxes, has used all manner of um, derogatory language for, for minorities and people of color. So I do find it hard. And I think it would be one of those instances where I would really like to see him grilled on it. You know, maybe he said, look, I, I just wanted to be a politician because I want to bring about change. And actually, I sold my soul by doing that with the Conservative Party. I still find it hard to swallow, but it's, it's plausible at least. Going from a very right-wing Conservative Party on immigration, saying what he said, doesn't really add up. We need to get him into the confession booth with Pastor Bassani sometime soon. Now, at the top of the show, I mentioned a Navara Media exclusive interview with Mick Lynch coming up later, so make sure to stay tuned for that. But before we go to our next story, just a quick reminder that at Navara Media, we have other exclusives too, like the range of sustainable products we're proud to stock in our merch store. Our clothing range uses eco-friendly inks, organic cotton and plastic-free embroidery in sizes from 2XS to 5XL and all posted to you in recycled packaging. Christmas is coming up, so if you're looking for a gift for a fellow lefty or even a angry Tory, check out the links below this video or head to shop.navaramedia.com for your goods and purchases. Next story. Eva Carley is a member of the European Parliament representing Greece, and until yesterday, she was also one of its 14 vice presidents. But following her arrest on suspicion of involvement in a bribery and corruption scandal, this happened. We shall now proceed with the vote by roll call, and the vote is open. Vote is closed, and the vote is carried. Carly is a member of the Greek Panhellenic Socialist Party, PASOK, as well as the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats within the European Parliament. But now she's been suspended from both. Last week, Belgian police raided various offices in the European Parliament, as well as 19 private homes, in connection with an alleged bribery plot. It's thought that Qatar, the current host of the World Cup, paid millions to European lawmakers in exchange for influence in the European Parliament. Qatar has come under intense scrutiny over its inhumane treatment of thousands of migrant workers who built the flashy stadiums now hosting those World Cup football matches, and it's also been criticised for its abysmal record on LGBTQ and women's rights. But that didn't stop Carly praising the country in the European Parliament just last month. Today, the World Cup in Qatar is a proof, actually, of how sports diplomacy can achieve a historical transformation of a country with reforms that inspired the Arab world. I alone said that Qatar is a front runner in labor rights, abolishing kafala, introducing minimum wage, despite the challenges that even European companies are denying to enforce these laws. They committed to a vision by choice and they opened to the world. Still some here are calling to discriminate them. They bully them and they accuse everyone that talks to them or engages of corruption. But still they take their gas. Still they have their companies profiting billions there. We can promote our values, but we don't have the moral right for lectures to get, to get 
cheap media attention. Carly was arrested during those raids by Belgian police, with the police also discovering 900,000 euros at her home. And her father was stopped by police while reportedly carrying a briefcase stuffed with £650,000 in cash. Keeping in the family, her partner has been arrested too, as have two lobbyists. But the scandal seems likely to go much further than just a handful of opportunists. Roberta Metzola is the president of the European Parliament, and she said this about the scandal. The enemies of democracy, for whom the very existence of this parliament is a threat, will stop at nothing. These malign actors linked to autocratic third countries have allegedly weaponized NGOs, unions, individuals, assistants and members of the European Parliament in an effort to subdue our processes. Not assistants. Transparency International, a global anti-corruption organisation, sees the scandal as part of a larger problem with corruption in the European Parliament. Its EU director released this statement. While this may be the most egregious case of alleged corruption the European Parliament has seen in many years, it is not an isolated incident. Over many decades, the Parliament has allowed a culture of impunity to develop with a combination of lax financial rules and controls and a complete lack of independent, or indeed any, ethics oversight. In many ways, it has become a law unto itself. Every serious attempt to improve accountability is blocked by the Parliament's ruling bureau with the acquiescence of a majority of MEPs. Now, Eva Carley's lawyer has denied that she accepted bribes from Qatar. Aaron, Luca Vicentini, the new general secretary of the Trade Union Confederation, was arrested and released as a part of this same corruption probe. Is this a wake-up call for the international left and corruption? Well, it's certainly a reminder that historically centre-left politicians and parties don't have especially clean hands in, in, in politics. Important to say that Metzola uh, herself is from Malta, uh, and they had, until very recently, a prime minister who was Joseph Muscat, who was implicated with connections. His chief, his chief of staff was allegedly connected to the killing of a journalist. So this idea that you know the, the Maltese political class has, has particularly clean hands to condemn that of Europe more widely is is a bit of a jump. Pasok as well, that the party which this lawmaker comes from in the 1980s, 1990s, often embroiled in corruption scandals. So um, not new in that sense, but clearly the scale of it, and I, and I think not just get the scale, the nature of it is probably new in so much as we now do have in the 21st century, these incredibly affluent, often quite small states, which exercise really extraordinary power. Obviously, Qatar is the kind of standout example of this, but you also have UAE, obviously far larger, but still massive political weight, Saudi Arabia, Singapore. That is new. The idea that you can have these quite small countries with real clout. And it's important to say Qatar really does throw the money around, not just with regards to the likes of the European Parliament or to FIFA. When I say throw money around, I mean lawful lobbying. This, of course, is unclear whether or not it's, um, it's happened or not with regards to this potentially criminal matter but also funding various NGOs. TED, for instance, takes a great deal of money uh, from Qatar. And this is a form of something which is analogous to corporate washing, but it's a state with clearly a mixed human rights record, to say the least. 
Until very recently, they had a, a labor system in that country with regards to immigrant labor, the kafala system, which was effectively a form of indentured labor. And so in terms of why they do these kinds of things, at the moment only lawfully, as far as we know, is to project uh, soft power without having the, the kickback and, and the negativity that should be associated with kinds of policies that they do have. And so far, it looks like they've spent their money pretty well. You know, they've not just won the World Cup, but they've had a great deal of kind of media and political guffawing over them in recent years. This is a big deal in so much, of course, that it's potentially criminal. And it may lift the lid on something far wider, which goes beyond just uh, the European Parliament. But regarding the European Parliament, the extent to which European lawmakers themselves mark their own homework, of course, historically, this has been a criticism of the European Commission and its accounts, which weren't open to, the, to public scrutiny for decades, by the way, is something which just, we keep on hearing with regards to Europe and the EU. And in a way, I'm kind of grateful we're no longer in the EU because, of course, if this story had happened and we were one of the member states, you can be damn sure we would have had a a week-long feeding frenzy from the right-wing press about how this just shows and demonstrates how corrupt uh, European politics is. Of course, our system is no better in many ways. I think it's probably worse. Well, I'm glad you said that, Aaron, because let's take a quick look at Qatar's influence a little closer to home now. A Politico report has revealed that the Qatari government spent more than £260,000 on gifts and hospitality for British MPs since October last year, with the average gift amounting to just over £7,000. First up on the sidebar of shame is David Mundell, a Tory MP and former cabinet member. He took a trip to Qatar last year, valued at £7,000, and then he defended the country in a recent Westminster debate over its abysmal LGBTQ rights record. Next up, we have Alan Cairns. Alan Cairns is another Tory MP and former cabinet minister. He's also chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Qatar. He took two trips to Qatar, valued at £9,323. Now, the MP's code of conduct stipulates that if you've received money from a foreign power, you have to wait at least six months before initiating a parliamentary debate that could be to their advantage. Well, Cairns didn't break that rule, waiting just over six months before putting forward a debate in the Commons in October, in which he praised the Gulf state. Next up, we have Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant is a Labour MP who took a visit to Qatar valued at over £7,000. But don't worry, that hasn't stopped him from criticising the country. He condemned the decision to hold the World Cup in Qatar. And he said that though he went to put his human rights concerns to the Qatari government, they, quote, didn't want to listen, and it all felt wrong. And he regrets taking the trip. Aaron, is there a heightened panic around Qatari corruption in particular, as opposed to other forms of corruption, as a result of the World Cup scrutiny? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I have asked myself this question several times. Does, does Gata regret putting in a bid for the World Cup? Because when they did that, I mean, to the best of my recollection, it must have been a 2010, something like that. I could be wrong. But they obviously did that to get a certain amount of cultural cachet, soft power, acceptance from the global community. You know, you don't go around invading or enacting regime change in countries which host the World Cup, right? You become a normal country, so to speak. So clearly there's, there's that strategy to it. And of course, part of their economic growth model is lots of um, tourists, property development and so on, land speculation. So you need to make it 
a destination. Of course, a World Cup can help in that, in that regard. But of course, this year, we've seen a massive spike in gas prices. You know, So any gas producer, whether it's Russia, Iran, Qatar, Algeria, the US, is loving it because you can just export your gas and make a mint. And if I was kind of part of the Gatsri elite, I would just think maybe, well, we didn't really need to do all this, jumping through all the hoops for the West and having all this scrutiny and accountability and being told off and whatnot. We could have just sold our gas and, and made loads of money. So, of course, they didn't know that would be the case more than a decade ago when they put in this bid for a World Cup or when they started contemplating a bid. But perhaps it wasn't in their rational self-interest to shine a global spotlight on what remains quite an autocratic regime. It certainly seems to be drawing parallels with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter as bad purchases of the year. Now, a story on the fact that London Fire Brigade is being put into special measures after a damning independent review revealing extensive racism, misogyny and bullying present in the service. The Times has a special report covering the details today. Now, this review was initially set up in 2021 by LFB Commissioner Andy Rowe after the death of firefighter Jaden Matthew-Francois-Esprit, who died by suicide in 2020. After Jaden's death, the 21-year-old's family raised concerns that racist bullying in the fire brigade had contributed to the circumstances surrounding his death. And after the inquest, senior coroner Mary Hassell recommended LFB take further action to prevent future deaths. Former London Fire Brigade firefighter Gareth Dawes told Sky News in November that service management was part of the problem. There was an argument that occurred and I went in to split the argument and I was called a black in that moment. By a colleague. By a colleague, a serving colleague from a different watch. And um, the onus was put on me as to whether I wanted to do anything about it when we returned to station. When he offered to help tackle racism, his bosses encouraged him, he said, but they simply didn't understand the problem. He resigned. They were just saying that it wasn't racism. This isn't racism. So that's why I mapped it out. And said, this is, this is how it plays. It doesn't necessarily have to be like the N-word, do you know, for it to be racism. But they just couldn't, they just didn't want to see it. They did not want to see how they were part of the problem. It was denial. It was denial. It was absolute denial. And it was much easier for them to see me as a troublemaker and someone who's too big for their boots. The LFB review concluded that the brigade was institutionally misogynistic and racist. Former Chief Crown Prosecutor Nazir Afzal, who conducted the inquiry, said he uncovered stomach-turning stories. Some women firefighters telling me that uh, they were afraid to go on operational uh, matters because they didn't have any respect for the, the men around them because of the, the way they were being treated. Uh, the black uh, firefighter who found a noose uh, by his locker, another Muslim firefighter who found, uh, found out, he didn't know at the time, that bacon had been um, scraped on, on his dinner plate before he ate on several occasions. Um, it was, uh, there were so many of these events. I mean, I'll be, I'll be frank. I mean, I've dealt with is probably think the worst that human beings can do to each other. But some of the stories I heard were heartbreaking. Uh, you know, people were talking about their experiences in a way that was really real to them, and they'd never been able to talk about it before. LFB joins the likes of London Met in being placed under special measures by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services. 
2022 has seen the highest number of forces under the watchdog's remit placed into this phase of increased scrutiny and monitoring. Interesting, Afsal posted this on social media in response to the news of special measures. Think it unnecessary at HMI CFRS to put at London Fire into special measures. LFB invited me in to review their culture, accepted my findings, and began implementing change with proper oversight. This may deter other institutions from independently reviewing themselves. That can only be bad. Aaron, what do you think? Greater Manchester Police recently celebrated the fact that they were out, that they'd taken the shortest time to come out of special measures. Do special measures actually result in the improvement of these public services, or does it mean hitting arbitrary targets? You know, celebrating coming out of special measures in in a quick period is like saying, well, I smashed up somebody's car, but I only went to prison overnight. I mean, it's obviously not not a good thing regardless, is it? And also Afsal's comment there about if we start to stigmatize this kind of stuff, that they'll fail to independently review themselves. I mean, that strikes me as a a strange attitude here. I mean, I, I suspect they shouldn't be independently reviewing themselves. And I don't know with regards to how the apparatus of this country works in terms of examining an institutional racism before it gets to a crisis point. I, I personally don't think we do it. I mean, I couldn't be wrong. Uh, but in terms of monitoring and getting feedback from employees on a, on a, on a regular basis, uh, that would be a, a smarter way of doing it, particularly in public services, especially with big employers, NHS, fire services, policing, education. I mean, that would, again, would strike me as a sensible way of doing things. So, yeah, this idea, it all seems very sort of seat of your underpants, right? They independently review themselves. They accepted what I said. So, yeah, they shouldn't be in special measures. It, it just seems a very cowboy way of proceeding. The way you solve problems in life generally is by having an objective and to achieve the objective, instituting a mechanism. And that's what Afsal claims has happened. But it makes sense to, I think, do it on a more kind of holistic basis and not on the say-so of a particular individual. You know, He may be wrong. He may have made a wrong call in regard to that. So... And especially, you know, Moya, given the given the extent and the intensity of these stories, which are shocking, they're jaw-dropping. I think people have, quite rightly, a profound respect for firefighters. I mean, I've lived in London for 16 years. I don't live there anymore. I know you, you live in London. Most of the Navarra team lives in London. It is, alongside healthcare workers, an admired, respected public institution. And they've clearly fallen very, very, very far short. And this idea that, oh, well, they're just going to change their culture overnight because of my recommendations just doesn't seem good enough. And another question for you, Aaron. Uh, why do these specific public services keep being found to be institutionally racist, sexist, and misogynistic? Is it a feature that's built in or is it something else? I think when you get large groups of particularly men together in a workplace and there's familiarity and there are probably, you can transgress boundaries with one another because you know each other, there's familiarity, like I say, And then they probably start applying that to new employees or people that don't necessarily believe the same things of them or don't talk like them or don't look like them. And it can get quite toxic quite quickly. And so, yeah, you get these insulated workplaces, particularly amongst like middle-aged heterosexual men. It's called banter, you know? And look, what you think is banter is obviously deeply offensive to somebody else. None of this is, by the way, banter. What's going on It's obviously, it's horrific. But the, 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 the rubbing pork products on this Muslim guy's plate in his meal before eating, they would have said, it's just banter. And I think this is something which clearly impacts larger workplaces with large concentrations of men 
winding each other up, trying to be funny, trying to get attention, trying to get status, you know, without demeaning my own sex too much. It's a bit like monkeys in a zoo sometimes. And with institutions, this is generally how society works, you create mechanisms to stop that, to inhibit it, to correct it. The fact that's happening in the London Fire Service and we're saying, well, somebody's just gone in once and they've made some suggestions, don't worry, that does seem woefully inadequate. Like you say, given that this is something we see repeatedly in these larger institutions, these larger employers. Basically, we need a feminist response to the crisis in our public services. And now on to other public services, and we're talking about hot strike summer, which turned quickly into direct action autumn, and now we're fully mired in a new winter of discontent. Strike action across Britain peaks this week as workers in transport industries, the NHS, Royal Mail and the civil service all walk out. And striking rail workers among those receiving the most headlines as the press increasingly monsters union bosses in the face of continued continued industrial action that threatens to disrupt Christmas travel plans. And particularly in the crosshairs is Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT which represents a significant portion of rail workers. Lynch and the RMT have been accused of holding Christmas to ransom by the likes of the Telegraph after RMT members, listen to that, members, voted to reject a pay deal with Network Rail. The deal would have entailed thousands of job losses despite a cumulative 9% pay rise over two years. Speaking to Channel 4, Lynch said that the Tory government were interfering with the offers being put on the table by train companies in England in particular. What we've got is a government that won't allow a deal to be developed. If the railway executives that I deal with were allowed to put their deal across the table, we could develop that and I could put it to my members in a referendum. They have been stopped. The deal and the process was torpedoed on a Sunday afternoon at five o'clock when they said to me, they won't let me put the deal that we've put together together. Lynch also publicly challenged the BBC's editorial line regarding the strikes in a chat with Michelle Hussein on Radio 4's Today programme yesterday. What I do find annoying though, Michelle, is that you put these lines that are directly taken from the propaganda from the other side. You never show any admiration for the fight that working people are putting up in this country, for the rebalancing of our society. You never criticise the super rich for what they're doing and what they're doing to nurses, what they're doing for the postal workers. And you never seem to take an impartial view on the way that this society is balanced at the moment and the the complete uh, lack of distribution of wealth in our society. You always just seem Um, to punt out anything that you receive from the the employers and from the government. And that's what I'm hearing directly through the... Through the filter of the BBC this morning. Oh, the, the question was about the average amount of pay lost by your members through strike action, which in the summer yeah, but are was you estimated concerned about at 50, that? So, well, are you going to contribute to our I, hardship I, fund then? Is, is there an amount that, that in, in the summer, it was estimated as being an average well, amount of 1500 Why are you pursuing this line, Michelle? Because you've why said, are you pursuing this line? Because, line, because, you've said, because you've said your members are making a sacrifice. And yeah, but I read this I'm, stuff in I'm, the Sun so and the Daily Mail. What's wrong with just saying, on average, our members have sacrificed X numbers of thousands of pounds? You've said they're making a sacrifice. What's wrong with putting a number on it? Well, why do you need that number? Because I'm interested in the level of sacrifice. Well, We're why in the aren't you of a... interested in what Network Rail and the government are doing to we... working people across this country what's, impoverish them what, what's, every day? What's wrong with you actually but putting a number on the sacrifice that you say and your members week. are making? 
to, to including why does that interest this, include, you, Michelle? Because we're in a cost of living crisis, because it's in the runoff. Well, why don't they give Christmas. us a decent pay rise then? Why don't you and pursue that? And because you say your members are making a sacrifice. Now, it was estimated at £1,500 on average in the, the summer. What's, what's the amount now? Well, why are you pursuing an editorial line that I could uh, read in The Sun or The Daily Mail or any of the right-wing press in this country and you're not pursuing the fact that working people, millions of them, are being impoverished and some of them made destitute by the attitude of this government and by their employers? I find this a shocking stance that the BBC will take. You're just parroting the most right-wing stuff that you can get hold of on behalf of the establishment. And it's about time you showed some partiality towards your listeners and to working class people in this country who are being they're, screwed to the floor by the attitudes and policies of this government. They're called questions. Mick Lynch from right -wing the press. RMT union. Thank you. Well, earlier today, Navarra's Labour correspondent, Polly Smythe, had the chance to ask some questions of her own and spoke exclusively to the man himself, Mr. Michael Lynch. She started by asking him if these latest strikes should be attached to the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and his economic vision. These are absolutely Sunak strikes. They came in with a new brand. Obviously, we saw the Feebrown craziness of the 40 days of trust. Was it 40 days? Was it even that long? I can't remember, but around 40 days. And the bonkers approach. And what they're giving off is this calm aura of being competent. And I do believe they are more competent. You couldn't be less, less competent. But I said at the time of the election, so-called election of the Tory leader, you can take your choice, Sunak or trust, but it's a short straw for working people because they're delivering very similar austerity-based, rampant capitalist politics based on a more conservative version of libertarianism, I think, where the free market will be let loose on this country even more than Thatcher or Cameron or even other free marketeers around the world have seen. I think they want to go for an absolutely libertarian, free market, militant approach to the way the economy is run and the way society is run. And that will lead to degradation. They're just doing it in a more controlled manner. Uh, not particularly, not very gradualist, because I think it's going to happen very quickly. And these things hit a precipice after a while. And that includes putting us into an economic uh, downturn, I think, from their point of view. But if you notice what's happening, the stock market's recovered. They've changed the fiscal rules recently to say that we've got a £50 billion black hole. But if they had the fiscal rules that were in in 2019, we wouldn't have that black hole. So they've created a fiscal and economic funding crisis just through the stroke of a pen, which has all happened inside a conservative regime. So they know what they're doing. They're more competent than trust, but they've got a very sinister agenda, I believe, for, for the rest of us. What's it like negotiating with them? Because, you know, it sounds fairly farcical. So you'll go into a room and you'll sit with the minister. They're normally very polite. These people are... Oxbridge public school people, they're not rude in any way. At least Mark Harper isn't, or Hugh Merriman that I deal with, and I'm sure Steve Barclay isn't a rude person. But it is dress rehearsed, so you get politeness, then you get assertive, it's nothing to do with me, I'm not involved. So Pat Cullen was called to a meeting, and they said to her, we cannot speak to you about pay. And her view is, I've come to speak to you about pay, that is the issue. We'll speak to you about non-pay aspects of the health service, to me, they will say, we're not negotiators, we're not involved, but I want to hear what you've got to say. 
and then they'll say, it's time now, 30 minutes is up, I've got to go to another meeting, I'll consider what you said and we'll get back to the employers because the employers will negotiate. Now, maybe we've got to break that mould a bit and I'll try and engage them into some proper dialogue and proper problem solving because negotiation is a problem. You've got to work on a problem. And if you were brainstorming it in an organisation, you'd take everyone's input, including the government, because the government's in there. They've got the money. The employers are in there. They've got the contracts of employment. We're in there because we represent the workforce. So it's a controlled show, as Malcolm X once said. And that's what what you get. And they then will put a press statement out saying we've met them and hope it goes away for another week or two or whatever they can get away with. Do you think that the Conservative government want to make you know, effective strike action illegal? They do want to change employment laws to make striking virtually illegal and certainly almost impractical or impossible. So it was strange when I met the previous Secretary of State, she was in office for 30 days or 40 days. I met her in the morning and she was, again, very polite. And then in the afternoon, she released the first uh, version of this new anti-union bills, minimum service levels. So minimum service levels will make it really difficult for us to have effective industrial action. So they've realised now that they can't stop us voting for action because we've beat all the hurdles that came through from the Tebbit laws in the early 80s, then uh, recalibrated in the 90s, and recalibrated more recently in 2016 and further on. So we've got these thresholds notice periods, all sorts of hurdles we have to get over. We've smashed all those. And one of the ironic things is because of the way we have to operate now, we're better in contact with our members and our members realise what the issues are and they're more involved, I think. It's not just a circular that comes around and says, vote this way. We have to actually get in there and do a lot more dialogue, which is a good thing, ironically. So they've given up on that to some extent. I think they'll come back to it. And now they're going to say, well, when you're on strike in transport, they're starting with, but I think they'll quickly extend it. So you'll, they'll go fire, they'll go, uh, they've already done the prison service, but they'll go health, they might go for other logistics services, but education is an obvious one because if schools close, everybody's affected or a big proportion of the population, the parents around the country. So they'll say you've got to run this service and it could be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% and somebody will decide that it will go back to the Secretary of State for the the sector, if you like, eventually. And they will decide what service. And they'll say to the employer, even if they're reluctant, and let's not forget, this could be the Scottish government, effectively. So Scottish education, Scottish transport, they could say to the Scottish government, who do not want to bring this legislation in, you have got to run a service, let's say 50% of Scottish railways have got to run. That will mean that our signalers will have to go to work fully because you can't run the signalling or the infrastructure half. You can't say we'll run half the signalling because it doesn't work. So our members will be named in a statutory notice and they will have to go to work. So what you're looking at here is the conscription of labour. You will have to report for work at this time and do this shift at full functionality. And that is the dragooning of working class people, which we haven't had for my lifetime. We've never had that. As reactionary as Thatcher and Tebbit were, they never dared to go that far. And even Stanley Baldwin in the general strike never took this step. Now, that is a complete suppression of human rights and personal freedom 
and civil liberties. And we can't allow that to stand. They will go further, though, and they're making their mind up now. And it's gone back to Grant Shapps in the Department of Business, whatever that's called, Bayes, I think it's called now. Don't know why it's called that. Uh, but it's the business department, essentially, trade and industry, it used to be called. And they're now thinking of broadening this to all the trade unions, so all sectors, and also bringing in these statutory requirements, such as four weeks' notice of strike action. So you issued a notice, by the time you get to take the strike action, everyone will have forgotten that they're meant to be on it, that you have to put every proposal to a referendum of your members, which costs us money. But if you imagine... I'm going to offer you 5%. That's the 5% offer. I want you to put that to a referendum. And as we've done this week on precisely that offer, our members have rejected it. They go, I'll offer you 5.1. Put that to a referendum. I'll offer you 5.15 next week. And you put that to a referendum. It's absolute nonsense. Now, I'm hearing that even the CBI, the employers' federations and others are saying, look, we don't want to get involved in this. This is now getting completely political. It would be better if we could involve, uh, resolve industrial disputes quickly and efficiently where they come up. For employers, it'd be obviously better if they didn't have them in the first place. But there is a number of groups that are saying this is a step too far for all sorts of reasons. And what it will mean is that disputes become longer because unions will have to resort to novel ways, such as extensive overtime bans and going back to what we used to call work to rule. So disrupting production rather than stopping production. And I think we'll have intractable disputes. We think we've got some now, but I think you'll have even more going forward, which many people will say, well, what is going on in this society? You know, where are we going? We don't do this anywhere else uh, in, in modern economies. So, you know, people quote France, they quote Italy, they quote Spain. They don't use any of this legislation. And when they do it, it's meant to be for things like national disruption, you know, time of war, for instance, and uh, natural disasters such as earthquakes and floods and all that. And you can see, even though we don't have that, but we do have people volunteering in these types of things. If you had flooding all over the country and you wanted to run an important service, the governments in Europe reserve the right to say you must go to work. You can't excuse yourself. But they've never actually used the legislation, whereas our lot will be using it as soon as possible. And you know, obviously this conversation shows that communicating these issues with nuance, you know, they're complicated and, and they kind of take time to unpick. Unfortunately, that nuance is not something that much of the media affords you. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I just wondered, you know, why do you think it is that um, the interviews you have, you know, uh, let's say on, you know, Good Morning Britain, you know, are conducted in the way they are? Well, the way the media works in this country now is to pitch people against each other, division is their modus operandi, I think. So they'll try to pitch railway workers up until now against nurses. I've heard that so many times. Why should you get a pay rise when nurses don't? As if nurses and railway workers are separate people. As it happens, my wife has been a nurse and a trade unionist in the uh, NHS for 38 years. And I was speaking to Pat Cullen last night. She's been a nurse in the NHS for 43 years, I think, and her entire family is. And loads of people in my family are in the NHS, and I'm sure everybody, there's a million NHS workers, at least. Everybody's got them in their families, in their friendship groups. We're not separate people. We are the working class. But this division that goes on, we see it in other sectors. They try to pitch people against each other based on their identity, their heritage, race, religion, 
ethnicity, whatever you want to call it. They'll find a way of this pernicious, you know, why are you getting it and they're not getting it? The problem is people aren't getting enough in general. Railway workers have a set of conditions. They have moderate wages in general. Some of them have low wages, but they do get a set of conditions that we value. But what they try to say is, why should you have it? Why shouldn't you be like a delivery worker? And that's what they're trying to do, as it happens, in the Royal Mail at the moment. They're trying to say to people who've got conditions, limitations on how they can be exploited, you're going to have no conditions going forward. You'll have to come to work when we tell you. You're going to have split shifts, or you'll even work on a piecework basis where you get paid by the package or the letter that you deliver, volume, and we'll only give you work when we need you to do it, which is the opposite of what trade unions have been trying to achieve over the last 200 years. So these divisive tactics are the oldest play in their playbook, and we've got to stop it. And the media is an essential part of that. It's easy for them to put out hate-filled bile and poisonous messages in three or four word phrases, the Grinch at Christmas and what have you. Whereas for us, we've got to put a more delicate and nuanced message back to try and o- overcome this. And that's why channels like this are so important because people can get their access to it elsewhere. I'm fully aware that there's a lot of right-wing reactionaries doing the same stuff as, as well as you. But it's disappointing when the mainstream media just goes to the lowest common denominator and I think BBC journalists are descending into that pit as well because they're under a lot of pressure. Uh, two of the leading people at the, TUC, at the TUC, maybe that's true as well, at the BBC, have been placed there by the Conservative Party, Tim Davey and Gibb, I think the other one is. And these are Conservative Party operators. They're members or ex-members. And they are turning the BBC away from an authoritative... I mean, I don't think they've ever been neutral. That's probably unrealistic. But certainly a slightly withdrawn observer and commentator that people could rely on. And they are now pushing very much a Daily Mail agenda. And the interviews I had yesterday were straight out of the Daily Mail editorial. That's not acceptable to me. And if I get the chance, I'll call it out. People ask me, ask me good questions, they'll get a decent answer, hopefully. If they ask me rubbish, they're going to get treated with contempt, frankly. At the start of the summer, you know, Ken Clark said that RMT can't be seen to be, you know, successful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as, as the kind of the summer of strikes have gone on and now we're getting to winter, you know, probably next year, there is a sense that kind of a lot of people are looking to this RMT dispute. Um, I just wondered what you think about that. They want to do us down. They want to knock us back like they knocked the miners back, like they've knocked other unions back in the past. But we will continue. We will not be deflected. We remain as a democracy, and we're a bulwark for defending workers and defending values that many people in this country share, like solidarity and fairness and a bit of equality uh, in our society. So this union's been going 150 years now. This is the 150th anniversary of our uh, union's founding, and we'll be going for a long time after this government has, has gone, and some of these employers have passed passed on from you know, the anthology of I shouldn't use the wrong word, but the anthology of employers that we deal with. So uh, I do find it inspirational, but also we've got a tough job to do. And uh, we'll keep going no matter who comes up to try and bat us down. You know, dispute with Network Rail and the train operating companies isn't the only dispute you've got running at the moment. Cleaners with the RMT going on strike December 22nd, 23rd. 
and the 31st, you know, they're outsourced yeah. with the likes of Mighty and Churchill. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that dispute. Yeah, the cleaners dispute is another railway dispute because all these cleaners work for the same companies as subcontractors as the um, network rail. So they're in it and many of the train operating companies. So they employ these people second and third hand. And what workers need to be wary of in this country is those grades, as we call them, those workers used to be directly employed by British Rail. And since British Rail has gone, they've all gone to subcontractors. All of their conditions have been stripped away, as well as their wages. So they're all on statutory wage levels now, uh, either the London living wage, living wage, or the national minimum wage. But if you take pensions, holidays, sick pay, annual leave, and a travel benefits as well, on the railway. All of those things have been stripped away, so they only work on statutory minima, and they're sick and tired of it. Now, we're running that campaign, one, to highlight it, to take industrial action. It won't stop the trains, we know that, but it'll make hopefully make uh, train journeys inconvenient, and some managers will have to do that cleaning and see how they like it, clearing up sick and all the rest of it, uh, and the rubbish that accrues, accrues on trains and food waste. But we need to highlight that issue that beneath those of us that are on the cards, as we say, working direct for the employers or the fortunate ones that we've defended, there is another group of people. And this is true right across the economy. So if you're working in an office in the city, there'll be a group of people that come out after hours that clean up your mess, clean the streets, clean the environment. In the NHS, it's exactly the same. The NHS is run by an army of people below the clinical level doctors, nurses, and other clinicians that are subcontracted, doing the porterage, doing security, doing the maintenance, doing the cleaning. Hundreds of thousands of workers who've had the same experience as railway workers. So this is a vitally important aspect of the next phase of trade unionism. We're trying to get other trade unions to join in in this. And I know the GMB has been doing stuff in the NHS and other places. We've got to link that up right through 2023 and make it the year of the cleaner and other ancillary workers. It's an army of security guards out there that are exploited, massively exploited, on some of the worst hours contracts and on social hours arrangements you that anyone would ever experience. Some of them are just constantly at work when they're not asleep. Often it's migrant labour, people from vulnerable communities where meaningful employment has gone out the window. So for me... That's a really important issue. We are hopefully going to get a deal on one of those companies uh, that's going to take people on the path to £15 an hour over the next uh, year or two, which is Eurostar, and credit to them. But we've got to call out these big contractors, uh, big sorry, these big employers, such as LNER, uh, Avanti, and all the rest of it. They're paying these poverty wages second or third hand, and it's their responsibility to cure it. But I've got to get that money off the same people that I've got to get money for the railway workers. So it's a really tough road, but we've got to make that a priority. And I think the Labour Party, if I had a message for Starmer, it'd be two things. Redistribution of wealth and the new workers deal that he's saying has got to deal with this scourge of outsourcing. Outsourcing is the source of zero hours contracts, vulnerability, precarious work and destabilised working class communities where people are scrabbling around in work poverty and all the rest of it. Most of that comes where people are not directly employed by the, by the company that is providing the service. So that's got to change. 
That was RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch talking to our Labour movement correspondent, Polly Smythe. As you know, our in-depth reporting and exclusive interviews wouldn't be possible without your support. To keep us growing and bringing you even more independent news, why not go over to navaramedia.com slash support and become a supporter from just £1 a month. And that's it for tonight. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm, so make sure to hit subscribe. I'm Moya Lothi-McLean and you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.